Welcome to Darkly Lit. The discussion you're about to perceive is real, but the book we discuss is fiction, specifically horror. Our team has built years of credibility in order to be able to decipher this novel, I guess. I don't know. I am Kayla King, and I'm joined by the rest of my crew. We have Sade. Good evening. And we have David. Is it fact or is it fiction? You decide. <laughs> and... Tonight, we are discussing a book that, honestly, I think this has been a long time coming because I keep bringing it up. We're discussing A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Oh, it's my turn to do the description. We're all looking at you, kid. (laughs) Cameras are on you, then they're rolling. Yeah, okay. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait, I forgot to slate. Slate. Uh, Sound speed? Speeding. Rolling. And Action. We jump into different two different time periods. So we have present day where we are with Mary, who is a 23-year-old young woman. And she's being interviewed for a book about her life. N- not her whole life necessarily, but this time period when she was eight years old. When her family was on a reality show called The Possession. But there's more to it than that. So she has an older sister, a 14-year-old older sister at the time when she's eight, named Marjorie. And Marjorie is clearly unwell uh, mentally, but it gets to a point where it's so bad that her dad seems to think it's possession. And his return to the, the faith, as well as his loss of job after a year of being unemployed, eventually encourages the family to basically after being poached for a reality show called My Possession, which is basically a reality show talking about um, Marjorie being possessed by a demon. For months at a time, uh, Mary's family is followed by this camera crew. Gosh, I feel like there's so much more to say. And this is why these descriptions get so difficult. Um, But I know we're going to get into it later on. Uh, This eventually leads into... A lot of tense issues, especially tension between the parents, because mom is definitely not on board, and you know divorce is inevitable. Her dad is basically fighting with, like, the people who are protesting outside their house, uh, who think, like, no, what you're doing is wrong. This is a sin against nature. Your child is the, the devil, and also what you're doing is not okay, while also dealing with the fact that They're basically treating their daughter's mental illness like she's being possessed. This does eventually lead into her finally going through an exorcism, which you think would be the most horrifying thing to happen, but it isn't. It's really the ending when it finally gets confirmed that this is something that actually not many people knew. Everybody assumed Mary and Marjorie's dad was the one who basically did a murder-suicide poisoning, but then it turns out Marjorie had poison and convinced young Mary to put poison into the pasta sauce, leading her family to all 
be poisoned and dead. And then Marius left there by herself for a few days. When you visually see it, it's kind of horrifying. After Mary explains the story, you start to wonder how realistic is she? Is what is what she's saying the truth? Is it not? I I don't know how you guys do these descriptions. They're so difficult. <laughs> You're doing uh, fine. I th- I think that's I think that's where I'm gonna stop. That that covers everything. But I mean, we'll get into uh, you know a lot of the nitty gritty stuff. So mm-hmm. now this is the second time I've read this book after. I think I read this about like back in 2019, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Been nearly five years at this point. Oh my God. After years, uh, I reread it a second time. I want to hear what you guys think of the novel. So I think I've said this before. I'm not big on possession stories, um, especially movies, just because I've grown a little tired of them. But I had a good time with this book. I listened to the audio novel of it and the narrator did a really great job with like all the characters and like distinguishing voices for them. So I think that definitely added to the experience that I had with the book. But I don't know, maybe because it was like there are elements of like, okay, well, is she possessed? Is she faking it? I really enjoyed it. For a possession story, this is probably one of the ones more that I've like, okay, this was a good time. For me, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not big on possession stories either. Um, but for, I feel like this is a book, not necessarily a possession story, as it is a book that includes a possession element. Yeah. Because I feel like the horror really comes from the realistic parts. The fact that there is something not quite right with uh, Marjorie. The fact that in the end, the thing she believes and the thing she does, that is more uncomfortable to me than the fact that she could be possessed by a demon. As well as, like, the consequences of those actions as well. Yeah, I'm of the opinion, kind of like with you both, possession stories don't, I don't find particularly compelling. What's compelling to me about this one is not just the, is the relationships between all the characters, the perspective of this eight-year-old girl trying to parse together what's going on. And the, the really tense, chilling part is just Marjorie's completely erratic behavior and you worry just how much, like, you just see her just shift wildly from different, in different ways. And no matter what's causing it, she is dangerous. She's, she's like, just little thing, unsettling things that she does, like the fact that she talks about creeping into uh, Mary's room at night and pinching her nose while she sleeps. And it's just little unsettling details like that are what, like, sell the story for me, as opposed to the idea that it's a demon. It's more like, this is this person is erratic, and we don't know what's going on with them. It's hard to say what Marjorie was going on there. And the uncertainty of the book is really kind of what I enjoy about it. You know how we've talked a few times in the past in some of these books about how ambiguity in horror can be kind of important. But sometimes that can be hit or miss. Sometimes you want a little more. I want to say right now, I think this is the perfect level of ambiguity. Because mm-hmm. that's really kind of what the story is about. Everybody thinks they have an answer. Everybody thinks they know what's going on. But... No one really does. Uh, certainly not Mary, who, even though she was closest to the whole thing. Her whole perspective on it is affected by the fact that she was so young and so impressionable when it happened. The film crew has no idea what's going on because they're just trying to get the shot, get the scoop, get what's going to give them ratings. The parents have no idea what's going on. They're too wrapped up in themselves. Rachel, has the biographer, has no real idea what's going on. And it's just watching all these different disparaging things try to piece together what's actually happening. And even Marjorie, even Marjorie will never know for sure if she knows what's going on. Because as far as we know, we don't know if it's really an act. She claims it's an act. 
We don't know how much of it is some kind of uh, mental illness or something or what or whether it is a possession. I I rule I personally rule out the possession entirely personally. But same. But the, again, the horror comes from the circumstances. And I think I want to put a pin in this, but I want to talk about like themes of exploitation in this particular story, but man, this was really good. I really liked this. <laughs> Because I also listened to the audiobook as well, and I think the narrator did a very good job as well. I've, I've read uh, five years ago, or back in 2019, I read the book, and then this time I listened to the audiobook, and yeah, the narrator is fantastic. I do like the voice of uh, Mary quite a bit. I think this is what feels like a realistic 23-year-old looking back at a herself as eight years old and some of the stuff that she does or said she did when she was eight is like yeah I I can believe an eight-year-old would act like this or (laughs) do these sort of things so I think sometimes writers tend to write these characters as a bit more precocious and it helps that this is a 23-year-old looking back at herself as a child so we can still basically you can have your cake and eat it too (laughs) (laughs) what do we think about Mary and Marjorie's relationship, because I feel like that is the main focus of the book. Because of what we learn later about how Marjorie feels about her parents, particularly her father, I think in a weird way, Marjorie is kind of reaching out to Mary for some kind of grounding or some kind of kinship. But it's hard to say because, again, just like a lot of other people in the story, Mary is having to deal with the psychological damage of this whole situation herself. She may not realize it at the time, but this is going to affect her negatively down the line. You never know if Marjorie really genuinely cares about Mary, or it, or if it's like this twisted form of caring, or if it, it, it's really hard to say what's what's going on here. But the relationship with the, I think between the sisters is the most interesting thing because it feels like there is a deep connection between them, even as I felt terrified for Mary. Because you didn't know what Marjorie was going to do. She would alternatively like play around with Mary and then scream at her and then threaten her and then act blasé. It was just completely just flip after flip after flip. You gotta wonder how much, again, kind of going with my theme about exploitation here, how much of that Mary is even remembering. Because again, it's an unreliable narrator talking to a very unreliable character in the past. So I'm having a hard time pinning down exactly what that relationship means, but it feels like the most grounded relationship in the story. It's always been about them. And ultimately, I think that's what one of the things Mary picks up on when she's doing her Karen persona, when she's writing the blog posts. I do feel like their relationship was genuine. Marjorie generally did care about Mary. Like they're, they had that, you know, sister Sister Lepon. I think what it was is even as Marjorie started to get sick and started to exhibit all these symptoms, she still was so close with Mary, especially as like she realized, oh, I can't rely on my parents to help me get better because there's something they have their issues too. I think when that became apparent to Marjorie, she started to rely too much on Mary because, and Mary being an eight year old child, couldn't provide you know the level of comfort that a parent could have and i think that's why marjorie like flipped back and forth on her a bit Mm -hmm. marjorie was becoming dependent on mary for comfort that 
Mary was incapable of fully providing and that, you know, in the sense like she wanted her there for the exorcism or she was like trying to warn her with these stories that she was finding or making up. And ultimately, like she did kind of like spare Mary at the end. So I do think that her relationship with the the, between the sisters was genuine, if not tragic. Talking about that ending real quick, I mean, she may have spared Mary, but she still was the one who made Mary do the poisoning that killed all three of them. Kind of connecting that to in this Marjorie maybe wanting Mary to be the one to fix things for her. Be like, okay, I know Mary. Maybe that's why she wanted Mary to do the poisoning because she's like, you're going to be my release. I can't do it, so I'm going to make you do it, even if I have to trick you. I think really vividly about that scene, yeah. Yeah, no, that scene was, I was like, oh, no. And then it connects back to Mary not liking sauce and her spaghetti. I was like, damn, that's good. (laughs) That was so good. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, like, I knew it, I saw it coming at a certain point. And when, like, she described Marjorie coming back from the bathroom looking like she'd been crying. Mm -hmm. But then, like, you know, just blase digging into the spaghetti sauce with everyone else. And they set that, Paul Tremblay set that up so good at the beginning with her not liking the spaghetti sauce. Oh, oh my God. So my theory is, because there's a point where she brings her the poison and she's like, oh, where's the rest of it? Because uh, there was only like a fourth left and she's like, oh, I dumped out the rest of it. There's that part of my brain that thinks, why would Marjorie have poured out three fourths of it? There's no reason for that. I think she already poured in some of the poison. I agree with say, I do think she finds a kinship with Mary. And I think there is, this is kind of like this sort of final bonding thing for them. Although, At least in Marjorie's way. In Marjorie's way, in a messed up way. Marjorie is not someone who can be fully trusted. I mean, she starts eating the spaghetti sauce and is taunting Mary, knowing she's about to die, knowing that there's poison in there and saying, it's like, I don't understand why you can't just try it. And I'm like, what is she doing? I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't have a psychology degree. I can't. But if I were to give her a diagnosis, I would say she's schizophrenic. A lot of the symptoms I've read about schizophrenia seem very similar. Paranoia, the fact she's paranoid about her dad basically eventually going to kill their family, the idea of uh, having a head full of ghost voices in her head, not always fully being there. Not knowing where she's picking up some of the knowledge that she has. Yeah, that sounds very schizophrenic to me based off what I've read. But again, I, I don't have a psychology degree. I can't say for sure what she has, but I can say for certain she is mentally unwell. She has a severe mental illness. There's no doubt in my mind. I think she does love Mary and I, I think she is trying to find that comfort with her as she's trying to get through and like basically listen past these like, head full of ghosts slash people all around her. I think it, there's also something to be said about that whole innocence of a child thing. Yes, Mary does lie a couple times but it's more like would you say it's fair to say like she almost lies because she wants to feel important like she wants to feel included yeah like she's always it seems like mary has this vibe at least like other person that she's always being sidelined but i mean you've told me this before you you work with children uh-huh. where they will say things about themselves or will just say things just to seek that validation or feel more they want yeah validation attention you that's definitely the vibe i get from mary sometimes that's very natural for children because like you know there are children so they're just pushed to the side their opinion isn't taken seriously so well they'll say whatever just to feel included mary seems to think like she will she has said some things or lies in the past 
that they took too seriously. And then as a result, that in her mind is like, oh, well, then that led to them deciding, oh, she must be possessed because Mary is saying things like, oh, well, she said she was possessed when we were in the basement. And I, I have a tough time believing that it was just Mary saying that that caused that. But I can understand looking back, seeing that only viewpoint that she might think, oh, it's my fault. I think Mary kind of blames herself. Even if she won't admit it? Yeah. Because there's a lot of moments that happen where it's like, I mentioned this, and then all of a sudden the My Possession show comes in. Or I, I mentioned this to them, and now they're considering doing an exorcism. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't th- think it's just Mary. Or the fact that, oh, well, she did the poisoning, so it must be her fault that her family's dead. When it's like, there's more to it than that. And that's another thing, too. Because of her limited viewpoint, there's so much more that happens that we don't get to see. And that leads to that ambiguity. Like, we don't see the parents' full discussion. I mean, we can tell from the side that they're probably going to get a divorce soon. This marriage is not going to last. Well, certainly the the parents are both absolutely flawed individuals in their own way. But like the dad in particular, I think, needs to have particular focus because according to Marjorie, he's the one that's drawing the most of her, her paranoia. And he, she claims that, or she claims to Mary at one point, that all of this was because she saw what she thought were signs of him going to go crazy, go postal, effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first I was like, okay, well, I get that he's got this random bit of zealotry because it's all he could fall back on because his wounded pride, effectively, is sort of the family breadwinner. But you got to wonder, though, because he does end up corresponding email-wise, and Mary only learns about this later when she's doing the interview. She sees the email correspondence between her father and... And that Westboro Baptist Church. They won't call it the Westboro Baptist Church, but you know it's the Westboro Baptist Church. That guy from the church who ended it very cryptically with, John, you know what you have to do. And you gotta wonder how much of that was, you know, factors into what comes later. And if maybe there really was something, maybe there was something to what Marjorie was saying. I wouldn't put too much stock in it, but it plants that really intriguing little seed of doubt and i think in not just mary's mind but also the reader's mind like why was that particular kind of what was it again powder that was used for the oh, poison i think it was like potassium cyanide potassium it, cyanide mm-hmm. thank you yeah because he had that big crucifix downstairs marjorie lied about the altar and everything but the big crucifix was still down there and did marjorie's dad just order the stuff to clean it up or there's just enough doubt in the story and from that thing that I th- you gotta wonder how much of it was the delusion and how much of it was just Marjorie actually catching on to something, even if Marjorie blew it out of proportion. There's that part where Mary's speculating at the end, like, was Mary sick or was dad sick or were they both sick? If they were both sick and then, like, they're just, like, feeding each other more paranoia where in that, you know... Dad goes down that zealot route and you know, starts blaming everything for what's happening to them. And then Marjorie is just getting more and more paranoid, thinking that her father is going to kill them all. And maybe that's what makes her take action. And like, I'm going to you know, take the initiative before he kills us kind of thing. You don't know. You don't know. It's, it's fun to speculate, though. Yeah, it is. This is a dark thing for me to say, but I'm surprised they didn't, like, while the parents were eating the spaghetti, they didn't notice potassium cyanide because potassium cyanide tastes like bitter almonds and uh it's it's a very distinct taste yeah (laughs) well i mean marinara sauce is also a pretty strong flavor that's true it's probably why it worked 
Mm-hmm. While we were discussing the poisoning and such, I tried to Google on my phone because we were discussing the the amount in the jar and if there had you know had Marjorie said it was full, so it seemed like she had poured out, mm-hmm. you know, so that it seemed like less in there was safer. But I tried to Google how much potassium cyanide can kill you, and all the results was like prevention, suicide prevention. Hey, connect with someone that cares with- about you. <laughs> I was like, Google. no, I, yeah. I just want to know. You have to be careful, like the way you word it in google is like yeah yeah google going hey now <laughs> without, hey now it, without it, i mean okay without saying a number could you could you say uh, no you, i i i didn't want to scroll through so many pages until it actually gave me information and was not so i didn't bother <laughs> it's actually fine by the way if you have you finished scrolling through all the warnings and all the the, the suggestions okay good because I get it from a research note. Right. I don't think anyone's judging you no. for doing that from a research note. That cracks me the fuck up, though. <laughs> I can imagine Paul Tremblay looking this up, <laughs> doing research for this. Like, how much potassium? Oh, God, come do you think on. Paul, yeah, do you think Paul Tremblay had to do a lot of scrolling and have to ask her a lot of uncomfortable <laughs> questions from Google? <laughs> I can imagine a lot of uh, writers of horror and mystery novels probably have to deal with Yeah, they're definitely, we're definitely all on lists because of it. Here's the thing, though. If everybody's on the list, you're still pretty incongruous on the list. Yeah, yeah good point. <laughs> I wouldn't worry too much. I just imagine those memes where, like, um, the government pops up and is like, bruh, you okay? <laughs> <laughs> The amount of levity we're getting from this bit is, is amazing. I kind of love this. <laughs> I, I remember the one thing that got me when I first read this, and even in this one too, but more so when I first read it, was the point where she said, I remember being found by my aunt when I was in my bed, but I know that the police report said that they found me. Didn't they say they found her sucking her dead mom's thumb? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that part, that just that image of her just like kind of half under the table, sitting against her mom's leg with like the hand just maybe dangling down. That was quite the vivid image. Yeah, yep. that's what got me too. Yep. You know, it's funny of everything we've read. That's uh, from this this season. That image probably gave me the most like vivid mental picture and gave me a legit chill up my spine. Yeah, just the horror of that idea. That's really good. She absolutely had a mental, like, at eight years old, had a mental break. And that's why you know this is contributes to the fact she isn't a reliable narrator, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Not not because she's like, because usually when we say unreliable narrators, they usually are morally gray characters. I don't really see Mary as necessarily morally gray. No. But she was only eight. You try remembering stuff from when you were eight years her, old. Her uh, Listen, Mary's morality for the majority of the story, if you're going to do that, her alignment is child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I want to play a character whose alignment is child. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. No, that's perfect. Oh, I, can I, I'm going to pull the exploitation pin out real quick. Oh, that's yeah, a, yeah. To me, that's a major theme of this novel. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's just the, the way people exploit other people and for different reasons. I mean... The most obvious one is the possession, the show, the people coming in and essentially cornering these people at their lowest point in order to use their story to try and get a a TV show out of it and paying them a gobs of money to do it. But it's not just them. I feel like everybody in the story has an exploitative angle to them, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Everybody, even Mary to a degree, as Karen, the, the, the last final girl. 
I don't feel like that's so much her exploiting what she went through as like so much of her like processing. Yeah, I'm not even saying it's it's pure exploitation, but it's the idea that like and, and yeah, the processing thing. But you know, it does end up getting her a deal with Fangoria. Yeah, good for her. I don't think that's exploit. She she suffered through that, and now she's at least making something of it through her blog or through the book that's being written. To be fair, if we go with Alignment Child from the past, she a lot of these things she does do for short-sightedly and very childlike, but for her own benefit, unlike the connivingness of some of the people around her. Yeah. I, I don't even think it's... I'm with Sade. I don't think it's exploited. Okay. I think she's basically... You, most writers write what they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... She's using a persona, which is actually kind of a smart thing in all honesty. The persona cracked me up. It is like the most ludicrous, like the way that this Karen character writes is so like, it has that early aughts kind of blonde yeah. energy. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's great. I love it. But like. But she does look at this. I, I got to get prop. She does look at the show through a the film critic perspective. Well, it's actually very smartly written despite the you know like oh my god karen scratches her head asterisk you know like that kind of thing the like six exclamation points at the end of a sentence (laughs) and i I will clarify as i'm thinking about them i say yeah i do actually agree with you that mary is not necessarily responsible the people around here are definitely the exploited Uh, i think the most exploited person is father wonderly Wonderly? yeah yeah yeah, fuck him You've got the dad going to him, basically going to confession, talking to him. And there's no doubt in my mind, he's probably the one who went to that possession crew or somehow knew someone from the possession crew. And it's like, isn't there like a father, whatever confidentiality? Isn't there like, oh, you can't say that shit? You're going against your oath, bruh. Well, the impression I get early on, too, is a lot of this is John, the father's fault, too. Oh, yeah. Because he, he, I mean, even early on, they talked about that marriage, that quote unquote marriage counseling thing they did. With, he did with his wife that was like trying to get back to their religious root and he said something about wives being beholden to their husbands or some shit like that so already i had a pretty bad opinion of the father so hearing him essentially trying to exploit the situation i feel like to regain some measure of control of his life mm-hmm. more for himself than really for his family oh it absolutely. is definitely for himself and not for his family he believes that he's doing this because he wants it but it's really for his own fragile male ego if I recall, he it, he actually stopped looking for work in order to go to church. Like, that's one of the arguments they got into. Yeah, I think that's what happened. And then instead of taking her to her appointment, he takes her to Father Wanderly, which I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, uh, through Father Wanderly. There's a lot of horror references in this, if I recall. I know Stephen Graham Jones gets a little... Yeah, I caught that. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Is that... I, it, it can't be the same Stephen... It, I, I, I mean, they're they're all probably in the same circles. Like. That's that would be amazing though if it if it literally was him just throwing in a nod, even if it's just abso- by name. It to absolutely Stephen is. Jones. It absolutely. Why would he not? <laughs> I have. He probably has met him or knows him. I mean, they're they're all modern horror writers. So, and also Stephen Graham Jones does have. A lot of credibility to his name. Even before he wrote All the Good Indians, he's he, there was a lot of books he wrote that still top some charts. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be that surprising if he did a little nod to him. Actually, on that same note, when we're talking about the, the possession, the only person on the film crew that ever gets brought up is in like a friendly light is, is Ken. Mm-hmm. And you got to wonder, like, how genuine is Ken? I think some of it is there, but the fact that he gives... 
Mary that camera is not just for the sake of giving Mary the camera. I don't want to say Ken is a morally gray person, but I think he's still doing his job. I don't think he's a bad person, but he's still doing his job. Mm -hmm. Like his job is to film a reality show. Yeah. And get the best show that he can. And it seems like he's actually genuine with Mary. I don't think he's a bad person necessarily. But he's also there to do a job. I'm with you in that I do think he was being like genuinely sincere with Mary and I don't think he gave Mary the camera thinking like, oh yeah, this kid's gonna get us some like really good shit. Because you're gonna hand an eight-year-old a camera you're gonna get videos of their goldfish. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Uh, So I I think like the, the footage that Mary catch it was Marjorie who put on the performance, you know, who made use of that camera. Mm-hmm. True. So I don't think you know Ken had any expectation of they would use footage that that Mary caught. I think he was generally sincere with Mary, but it do- it does come down to like he's an adult interacting with a child who is there to do a job, who is there to film, you know, the family and tell this story. I was kind of hoping that we would hear later on that, like, Mary did get to meet Ken again, and, like, he was, like, you know, good guy. But, like, I was like, eh, I liked Ken. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably better that it, that got left ambiguous, too. Like, we never yeah. really find out what happened to Ken. I realize another theme that pops up is a feminist theme, because have you noticed a lot of the guys are like, how could this 14-year-old girl know this? And his, his, the mother's like, what the fuck are you talking about? She's not that, she's not a dumb shit. And also we have the internet. What are you, even yeah. even Ken's like, I yeah, she probably figured I was a fan because I wore my uh, Muscatonic University shirt. Like, it's <laughs> not that hard to put it's, two and two together. It's all the Zealot men. It's, yeah. it's the father... It, it, it's John and it's Father Wanderly. It's they're all just oh, it's clearly this because there's no and yeah, it just stinks of that again uh, with that theme of exploitation. All these people are finding ways to exploit, uh, you know, Marjorie's mental illness and um, and uh, I, hey, can can we all appreciate the fact that how much Charlotte Perkins Gilman gets evoked in this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The yellow wallpaper much? Like, hell, this, the the wallpaper in the sunroom of the house I, I immediately yellow. thought of that, too, yeah. I mean, the, one of the opening quotes at the beginning of the book is taken directly from the yellow wallpaper, which is, again, there's there's this, ah, uh, I think Paul Tremblay and I are on the same page about how much we love the yellow wallpaper. <laughs> it's, like, still one of my favorite short stories. So, just, like, again, the themes of of, of a woman, or in this case, a young woman, in, in, in Marjorie's case, being exploited and the only way that she can like express herself to a degree is and get herself kind of heard is kind of through madness letting the the woman in the wallpaper out the the, you know the protagonist in the yellow wallpaper is locked in a room and not allowed to have anything stimulating because she's suffering from postpartum depression and all these men think they know what's best for her same with marjorie to a degree i mean marjorie's is definitely more severe but you can see the parallels Mm -hmm. the thematic parallels it gets brought up too in Karen per- Persett's um, article as well. Yeah, Karen being Karen being awesome brings up Shirley Jackson, the mm. Montague Hill House. Thank you. I never thought of the house though as a, a live or anything like that. I actually had a pretty good idea of what this house looked like. Yeah, this is no House of Leaves. This is no Hill House. This is just a normal house. But it 
it takes on that character. I like how through the way people look at it, through the lens of the show, or through the lens of Mary remembering a certain way, it takes on that character, even though the house is so normal. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I will say, too, though, just uh, an aside, the amount of pasta that gets brought up in this made me crave pasta <laughs> so much. <laughs> even with the gross part where she throws up into her pasta. Oh, yeah. It's not the pasta that gives... Mary trauma, it's the, what, the duck sauce? The ducks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that it's never the pasta, it's Chinese food that she has trouble eating. I mean, that's how trauma works, though. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not what you expect it to be. Do we want to get into questions, or? I feel like I'm ready for questions. First off, uh, we have a comment from Bringer. Thank you, Bringer. I really want y'all's take on the ending and what you think actually happened that day. I'm having trouble coming up with questions. This is a weird one where the ending made me feel so upset and emotional. It's that really good horror where the supernatural isn't scary, real life is. I think the majority of this discussion has kind of been, a good chunk of it has been about the ending. Mm-hmm. But what do we think exactly happened that in, that day? I mean, I don't have any reason to doubt what Mary said about Marjorie tricking her. I don't either. My theory is that Marjorie, because I can't imagine her just dumping three-fourths of it just, to, oh, like, what, out into the yard. I think she already put some poison into the sauce already. I can't explain the three, three, three fourths of it part unless dad was already using it to polish the brass uh, crucifix. Or what if dad had already put some in and that was what's left over and they just added more? Oh. I mean, unless we're like a chemist, we're really not going to know and Google doesn't want to tell me. <laughs> worried <laughs> for my mental health. I don't know. It could, in terms of like how much poison did they actually all get, I don't think it's, it's super important. I, I do think though that it was Marjorie's actions that made it it all happen. Mm-hmm. On that note, I actually think this is interesting because if dad really was planning on poisoning the whole family, he didn't remember that Mary wouldn't have the pasta sauce. If that was his way of poisoning them and he was going to kill all of them. That's I mean, why he I... doesn't even realize that his own daughter could look stuff up on the internet. So I mean, fair. I personally think that at a certain point, what ultimately is happening is, is Marjorie really is leaning into the paranoia and the theory that dad is going to go postal. He might not actually go postal, but there's enough evidence for her to believe that. And so rather than wait for him to do it, she's going to do it and at least make sure Mary is spared in the process. It's a beautifully ambiguous ending in the most horrifying way. I love it. I remember when you first read it, you kept telling me, oh my God, David, oh my God, this ending, this <laughs> ending. And you, this is the reason you kept bringing it like, I, we do got to read this on Darkly Lit at some point. And we finally got around to it. And I'm really glad we did. There's a lot of themes. So many themes. Yeah. We also got a comment and questions from Dan. Thank you, Dan. I think this book has one of the coolest titles you could have for a horror or dark fiction story. Head Full of Ghosts. Yeah, that's yeah. a very good title. I did very much enjoy that. It's one of those few times where at the t- at the end of the story, I'm like, oh, this, this title fits so well. Because like, there's a point where Marjorie says, oh, I have a head full of ghosts, something along that line. And they're like, ah, hey, there it is. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, I remember having this thought because uh, I finished it yesterday and I was like, oh, I get it. Mary's the one with the head full of ghosts at the end. And I was like, okay, touche. That's very good. Oh! Can we talk about the very, oh very end? Oh my god! I yeah. didn't think about... Rem- yeah, like, because the families are ghosts. It, it, this is her memories. This is her... Oh my fucking mm-hmm. god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the connection between the sisters deepens even uh, yeah, more. Yeah. Holy shit. So, so clever. I, I did really appreciate that. Actually, this really, really observant. That's a great thing to put I out. I didn't even say. catch awesome. that. 
I actually, one of the things I want to talk about was I love the parallel at the very end of the story where after she's revealed this to Rachel, she notices how it feels like the restaurant is getting colder. And what I like about that is it's it's clearly just the atmosphere, something with the condition and everything. But Mary is, from a mental standpoint, connecting that moment back to the exorcism room when the windows were open and the room was getting cold and Marjorie kept demanding blank the blanket. Just the idea that the coldness was somehow affiliated with the possession. I just love that thematic tie. It doesn't mean anything to anyone else, but it means something to Mary. And it means something especially to us. I don't know. It, it could be connected in that okay, during the exorcism, it was cold because for whatever reason and because the demon in Marjorie is being expelled and whatnot. In the part when the cafe being cold, maybe Mary's finally being expelled of the demons that are that is the story that she's been keeping, the secret. Ooh. Ooh, dang. Yeah. That could be the parallel. That's what I'm thinking. That's deep. I like it. Say's coming up with some good interpretations. I, you know what? I this love is why this. I'm glad we're having this discussion. We're all thinking of It's the the joy of this podcast is that we can we all like obviously will catch different things about the book, but it's usually in like these discussions that we're like, oh hell yeah, that's right. Oh shit. <laughs> Yeah, oh my gosh. I thought this one was pretty good, although I felt like it could have been maybe trimmed up a little bit. I enjoyed the open-ended questions it posed. I'm trying to figure out where it could be trimmed up. I honestly, this was like perfect amount of everything. Like, you know, like I I want all I want, character interactions, character development. I love these details and I want some of this and the ambiguity. Like it all felt just perfect pasta sauce, perfect blend of spices in this (laughs) sauce. Okay. With just a hint of bitter almond taste. (laughs) Yeah, I I have to respectfully disagree. I think that I think the pacing was good because I enjoyed that in the novel, especially in the flashbacks. We had these little moments where we just got little insights into Mary what she did, what the, how she viewed the world around her, not even necessarily tied to the family, but all of this was important for deepening her as a character and deepening the world, making the narrative mm-hmm. feel more grounded. So I feel like it was actually pretty tightly written in that respect. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was paced very, very well. And it's, it's, a, it's already a trim little novel as it is. That's just my opinion, though, so... I like stories that leave characters and readers without answers. What's important a lot of the time is accepting what is and moving forward. He asked three questions... All right. What was your interpretation of the growing thing story Marjorie told? Now, interestingly enough, Paul Tremblay actually has written a short story novel called Growing Things, and one of these short stories is a the Growing Things story mm. uh, that came out. I want to say a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Okay. Um, but I, I haven't read it yet, so I can't fully say what he wrote in that book. But it's Richard Scarry fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a way for Marjorie to convey her concerns and paranoia to Mary in a way that she might understand where like maybe the growing things was just honestly just like the threads of anxiety that was just consuming them as a family. Yeah, growing out of control. Yeah. I feel like it's another way for her to describe the ghosts, the mm-hmm. things in her head. That's my takeaway from it. It was almost like because it's the thing that the way that those ideas, those things are growing with her. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about that bit where she tells the story about how the growing things pulled the body of the mother who was poisoned out of the floor. That's like hinting at the fact that like, yeah, if I hadn't taken the time to have these ideas, I wouldn't realize that we are in danger because our father is going to go crazy and kill us and go postal. 
I think it, it is an interpretation of basically showing her her paranoia for the fact that her father is mm-hmm. about to snap. Because before all this, he was unemployed for a year mm-hmm. and still struggling to look for a job and then also starting to become a little more religious-y, Jesus-y, back to his Catholic roots sort of thing. I think Marjorie was noticing all that. And then because she does have the internet at her fingertips, which is clearly proven because she was able to tell the story of the molasses flood, which actually back in 2019, that was the first time I actually heard about that, was reading this book. And then I realized, oh, this is a real thing that happened. Oh my God. Uh Yeah, no, I highly recommend to you guys and to listeners to find the puppet history episode on the molasses flood. I yes. love that episode. <laughs> it is so good. Getting back to the the growing thing story, I think it also is like a reflection of like like how I was saying that Marjorie was becoming dependent on Mary. I think it shows that in that like the growing things and then the mother dies first because Marjorie doesn't see her mother as like being as someone who can help her anymore and her father is pushing these ideas and so now her father is a threat same as in the story. It's just the two sisters at the end of the story but the older sister is sick. I was trying to convey to Mary, like, like you're the only one left who can help me, but obviously Mary can't. Yeah. God, that's so sad. The next question. Would you watch The Possession? Some of it was kind of interesting, but a lot of the episodes seemed boring. Oh, God. You, this is the, It's the kind of reality show jank, the way it's described, that I uh-huh. would hate. On top of, like, not having an interest in possession stuff already, I, like, scroll past that one. I would probably look stuff up about it, be like, what the hell is this? I can't believe someone made a reality show about this. Not watch it, but then look up a bunch of shit written about it. I probably would have read Karen Persett's article, on, in all honesty. This is coming from people who only watch Ghost Adventures to watch Zach Baggins just completely make a fool of himself. Speaking of which... uh, (laughs) Speaking of Zach Baggins. The last question. What reality show would you go on if you were hard up for cash? Alternatively, make up a new reality show. (laughs) Oh, fuck, Dan. Okay, hang on. I gotta Uh, think about this for a second. I want to be on Nailed It. Does that count? What's Nailed It? It's a baking show on Netflix. Oh, yeah, I would count that. That's the only show I ever think of like, man, I want to be on that. <laughs> the only reality show I probably, I look back on like watching when I was younger that I actually did enjoy was The Mole. If I were to be on a reality show, I would have had fun on. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I can see your face, David. <laughs> I just, it was. It's, it's funny to me that the moment you mentioned The Mole, the only thing I could think of, it like struck like lightning is just, who can it be Because <laughs> I'm thinking of reality shows from that time period. And I think if I would have been on a reality show during that time period, the mole would have been a fun one. Because it's, it's a lot of just tasks and trying to figure out which one of these people is trying to screw me out of money. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a weird one, but I don't know if it quite counts as a reality show. It's more like a game show, but does Elevator count? Oh my god. We found this a few years ago on Netflix. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but it was this horror reality show where every time they'd set it up, they'd have a story to go with it, and they'd bring in a bunch of people to be a team. And their goal was, it was like part haunted, like theme park haunted house meets escape room meets series of challenges. And they were all connected by the so-called elevator where you'd take it to different floors to do the challenge. Oh, I remember that now. It was a ton of fun to watch. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be on that one. Does that cover us all yeah. other questions? Yep. That's our final question. Do we have any final thoughts? Hand the pasta over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, after reading the second time, I'm glad it's as good as I remember it being. Sometimes you read a book and then it's like, oh, was that really as good as I remembered it? And I'm, I'm glad it still holds up. And I'm glad that you guys also enjoyed it, too. Yeah, it was a page turner for me. I had a lot of downtime where I could uh, read it during October and it was a great October read. So uh, coming into November, uh, I'm happy to have read it. And it's one that I would probably, I'll probably read again in the future. I like how we have two two stories so far where it's like families being murdered and the lone survivor. (laughs) (laughs) Unless I find something else that I really, really want to read, but probably not. I can probably promise you that we'll have one more for the next season. Nice. (laughs) Well, I'm already putting together a list of books and I've got two I think I've already picked out for the next one, but what are we reading next? Ooh, should I? I guess I should say. We are reading The Silent Companions by Laura Purcell, I think her name is. (laughs) related to karen purcell (laughs) and that will be our our last book of the season sweet well get ready for a spooky story in december everybody if you like what you hear check out our other podcasts on the creative horror network at creativehorror.com or check us out on youtube just look up creative horror and you will find us there you'll find other podcasts like the jameson shapes and uh undercooked analysis as well as uh the most recent midnight marinara and final episode of midnight marinara that's right just came out so give that a listen thank you i know that there will be changes in the near future to our patreon david do you want to discuss that yeah we are moving the midnight marinara patreon to a general creative horror patreon which means hopefully more content from all of us and more unique content going forward Since I've wrapped Midnight Marinara, I'm kind of taking a little bit of time off to uh, assess where I want to go creatively after this. But trust me when I say that we all have ideas that we're all excited about and that we're going to contribute to the overall quality of that Patreon. So uh, while I won't drop an address right now because even the address name will change, it was patreon.com slash Midnight Marinara, but we're going to change the name of it so it widely covers the broader creative horror spectrum. But there's going to be some house cleaning here in November. So between now and December, keep an eye on our social media and our various locations too. So we'll keep you updated about if you want to join that. Uh, Anybody who joins that Patreon becomes a member of the Creative Horror Discord, where we do have all these questions posted up by our our listeners. uh, And you can join the discussion there. That tends to be where people are the most active, people like Bringer and people like Dan. Mm-hmm. And then I know, um, last I checked, I saw there were some other discussion going on with the book. Um, thanks, Way joined in on that as well. And it does seem like a, there's some good book discussion there. So if you want to get your questions in and more quickly, we do still take questions from Twitter, but that hell site is probably going to be burning to a crisp very soon. Uh-huh. So if you want to get your questions in, that's probably the best way to do it is hopefully donate patreon or you can also email us at uh darklitpodcast at gmail.com i do want to give a quick shout out to fang sway because i do enjoy the fact that oftentimes uh fang will post uh play-by-plays of like gut reactions to the book mm-hmm. that we read and i i think that's always a lot of fun doesn't always make it into this but i just want to acknowledge it because uh fang we appreciate it <laughs> well uh, i believe it's time to blow out the candles uh but i with that window opened and the cold air coming in, dropping down, it'll probably blow out the candle itself. Or maybe one of us is possessed. There's probably some. Uh, don't don't worry. I'll I'll go close the window and. Hey, why is this drawer 
opening and closing by itself. I'm not doing this. It's not me. Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinara, and this podcast is part of CreativeHorror.com, a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at CreativeHorror.com. Ha, 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 ha.